Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. Our team worked hard to put this sermon together with you in mind, and we hope it helps you take your next step with Jesus. Enjoy. Good morning. You can have a seat. Uh, Today, we will take a look at a story found in Mark chapter 3, and so you can grab your Bible, open your Bible app, and turn there now. Uh, If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. And uh, while you're doing that, I just want to wish everyone who's joining us live on one of our campuses or watching online, Happy New Year. I hope you had a great time ringing in this new year, this new decade for that matter, on Tuesday. Uh, I had, was in the Midwest visiting my family in St. Louis for Christmas, and so we got back in town here on Tuesday evening. And so we, uh, we celebrated the New Year. We partied hard by watching about 20 minutes of the Rockin' New Year's Eve special and then going to bed by 9 p.m. It was fantastic. Anyone else not make it till midnight? Yes, you are my people. I love you guys. Uh, but, you know, oftentimes with the beginning of a new year, many of us will establish New Year resolutions. Uh, Last weekend, Pastor Matt told us that on average, though, most people's New Year resolutions only last until about January 12th. So when you think about it, that's extremely sad, isn't it? Like what uh, it takes us 12 days to fail at a goal that was supposed to last us 12 months. And I say that without judgment, though. Like I absolutely fall into this category. Two years ago, I had made a resolution that I was going to read 24 books in one year, two books a month. And I love reading. And so this was a super realistic goal for me. Uh, I was, I was, it was the same year I was going to have my second son. So I was going to have three months maternity leave, like all this extra time on my hand, not working. Like, and so I'm like, surely I'll be able to achieve this goal. No problem. January, February roll by, and I'm right on track. I'm starting March with having read four books, like feeling really good about myself. And then March goes by, and April goes by, and May goes by, and June, and I failed to read a single book the remainder of the year. Like four books, that was it. I was done. Um, And uh, so last year, I made the resolution to not make a resolution, and this year, I am once again uh, succeeding at that same goal. So yay for me. Good job. Um, but uh, it makes sense why resolutions, they fail so quickly, right? Like they, they seem good, they sound great, until they get uncomfortable, until they require sacrifice. I want to read for an hour before I go to bed every night until like Disney Plus comes out and all I want to do is binge watch The Mandalorian. I want to lose 15 pounds, you know, until I get a whiff of that fresh baked bread or pizza or pasta or cake or cookies, like literally any carb, any sugar, that's my jam. I want to start getting up early until my alarm goes off at 6 a.m., right? And it's still dark outside and it's freezing cold, but my blankets, they're so warm and my pillow is so cozy. And guys, the snooze button is like the greatest invention of all time. Like it's just begging you to push it nine times. It drives my husband crazy, but I love it. I want to change, but I don't want to make changes. Like, I want to grow, but I don't want to be uncomfortable. But the problem is, in order to grow, we have to do things that are out of our comfort zone, right? Because the truth is, growth requires discomfort. Ask any woman who's ever been pregnant, and that is absolutely true. And psychologists, they actually confirmed this truth over a century ago, explaining that a state of relative comfort, it creates a steady level of performance. Therefore, in order to maximize performance, aka in order to grow, uh, you need a state of relative anxiety. 
where your stress levels are just slightly higher than normal. And, and psychologists, they call this state optimal anxiety, and it's right outside of our comfort zones. In other words, if we want to grow, we actually have to get uncomfortable. Or as the wise, respected sage, Master Shifu from Kung Fu Panda once said, if you only do what you can do, you'll never be more than you are now. Growth, it requires discomfort. And this idea doesn't just apply to our physical growth or our relational growth, but also our spiritual growth. If we want to grow in our relationship with God, we have to get out of our comfort zones. And so with that in mind, let me ask you this question. Where do you want to grow spiritually this year? In what ways do you want to grow in your relationship with God? Have you, have you spent any time thinking about that yet in the first five days of 2020? Maybe this year you want to grow in your knowledge of God. You want to understand more of who he is. You want to understand scripture more. You want to wrestle through the doubts and the questions you have when it comes to God and to faith. Maybe this year in 2020, you want to grow in your closeness to God, to experience him more in your daily life, not just on the weekends, not just when you're at church, not just when something drastic is going on in your life, but each and every single day. Maybe for you, you want to grow in your obedience to God this year. You don't just want to learn about what Jesus is calling you to do, but you want to actually live it out every single day, everywhere you go. Where do you want to grow spiritually this year? Now let me ask you a follow-up question to that. Are you willing to let God make you uncomfortable in order to get you there? Are you willing to allow God to make new changes? to accept new challenges in your life in order to grow you closer to him, even if it's hard, even if it requires a shift in perspective, a change from how things have always been, even if you have to make sacrifices or surrender control. Are you willing to let God make you uncomfortable? Well, this is where our Bible story in Mark 3 is taking us today. It's here that we find a challenge that Jesus gave to his audience over 2,000 years ago now, in order to help them grow closer to him, even if it meant being uncomfortable. And it's this challenge, same challenge that he gives to us today. Let's start reading. Look at Mark, Mark 3. We're going to begin in verse 1. Mark writes, Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up. In front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Okay, so we have three main characters so far in our story here in Mark 3. Uh, the first is Jesus, right? He's the star of the show, son of God, savior of the world. The second is our audience, the people in the synagogue, which was probably a good size uh, since the story says that it took place on the Sabbath, right? That was their Sunday morning, the day everyone went to Sabbath, uh, went to synagogue, went to church. But even though we don't know much detail about this specific audience, we do know that 
the crowds following Jesus at this time, they were becoming more and more divided. There were some that loved Jesus because of all that he was doing, his miracles, his healings, his teachings. And then there were others who were growing more and more suspicious of Jesus, even hostile towards Jesus because of all that he was doing. And in fact, if you read Mark chapter 2, just the chapter before this, uh, and read the stories leading up to this one, you'll see that this latter group, Mark describes them as the teachers of the law, of the Pharisees, that they already have several issues with Jesus and his new way of doing things. They don't like it. And in Mark chapter 2, in verse 7, the religious leaders, they call Jesus a blasphemer. In verse 16, Jesus gets the reputation of being a friend of sinners. And then in verse 24, he's accused of being a rebel, a Sabbath breaker, a law breaker. The religious leaders, they are not so subtly dropping hints to Jesus that he is not welcomed around here anymore. That his new way of doing things, it's making too many people uncomfortable, particularly them. And so they don't want him around. And this is where the third character in our story comes into play, this man with a shriveled hand. I mean, he finds himself smack dab in the middle of all of this tension between Jesus and these religious leaders. And the Greek word translated for shriveled here, it can also mean withered or stiff. Uh, in other words, this was more than just like, he didn't just have wrinkly, like dried up skin or eczema. No, he, uh, he had an actual disability. His hand was deformed. He, he couldn't move it. And because of this man's physical disability, he would have received an immense amount of judgment from everyone around him. Because you see, at that time, people viewed his physical deformity as being a result of some great sin that he must have committed or some great sin that his parents must have committed. And that's why he is suffering this physical deformity. Everywhere he went, this man, he would have been seen as lesser than Everywhere he went, he would have been the recipient of judgmental glares, of, of whispers behind his back. He most definitely would not have felt comfortable in synagogue. Surely he would be sitting in the back trying not to draw attention to himself. And so you could imagine the horror that rushes upon him when Jesus looks at him directly in the eye and tells him to stand up in front of everyone. I mean, had he known that his, his, his physical deformity would have been made a public spectacle, he probably would have stayed home from church that day. But luckily for him, Jesus is not like everyone else. Jesus wasn't motivated by religious piety or a list of do's and don'ts uh, that stand above the needs of hurting men and women. No, Jesus, he is different. He is new. He's motivated by love. He's motivated by people's needs that he sees around him, regardless of religious customs, regardless of religious rules. And this is the tension that we see in Mark chapter 3. It's a conflict between religion and love, between law and compassion. We have the religious elite standing firm on the side of law, and then we have Jesus right alongside this broken man standing firm on the side of love. Which leads us to verse 4. Look back at that. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? 
Okay, in order to fully grasp what's happening here, we have to understand a little bit more about this word Sabbath. Because you can see in this story, the Sabbath is what's at stake for the religious leaders. Sabbath is what's standing in the way of this man being healed. But why? Why is it such a big deal? Well, for starters, the word Sabbath, it means rest. Rest. It was a day of rest, one day out of every seven days, that was established by God all the way back in the book of Genesis with creation. And then a little later, we see God, he gives this command of Sabbath to Moses and to the the people of Israel uh, as a part of the Ten Commandments. And from the very beginning, Sabbath, this day, it was meant to be a gift to God's people. That they would have one day out of every seven days where they can rest, where they can relax, where they cannot worry about the stresses of their life or of the world. They can focus on God, they can focus on their family, and, and they'll still achieve all that they could. God will miraculously still achieve all that they could if they were working all seven days. What an incredible gift. The problem was, as with any religious rule, it can be difficult to define, right? Well, what does rest mean and what does work mean? And I need to know those things so I know how to avoid breaking this law. And so many Jewish leaders, they saw it as their duty to offer a rule or at least a precedent for every single conceivable Sabbath question that might arise. And as a result, they took God's simple command to just rest at one out of every seven days. And they added to it this long list of do's and don'ts, of can and cannots. Some examples would be that they added a rule uh, forbidding a person from carrying a child on the Sabbath. Could you imagine trying to take care of your newborn baby when you can't pick them up for an entire day? It was forbidden to help a birthing animal on the Sabbath or or to retrieve an animal that maybe fell into a pit or hurt themselves in some way. No, if it happened on Sabbath, well, you're out of luck. Hopefully they don't die. You can tend to them tomorrow. These strict Sabbath do's and don'ts, they're things many Jews still observe to this day. Uh, In fact, two years ago, I had the opportunity to help lead a cornerstone group to Israel. And while I was there, I noticed all the hotels we stayed in, they had specifically designated Sabbath elevators. Where on one day, every single week, uh, these particular Sabbath elevators, they were programmed to stop at every single floor in the hotel because it would be considered work to push the button for your floor on the Sabbath. Can you imagine going up 30 floors, one by one by one, like, but it's Sabbath. And just in case all of these rigorous do's and don'ts, they weren't clear enough, like uh, there was also this general rule of thumb for Sabbath. And the general rule was don't do any work that wasn't absolutely necessary. And the way they defined absolutely necessary was any work uh, that uh, that wasn't life-threatening. And so this is where Jesus and this man with the withered hand, it comes into full focus because this man's condition was not life-threatening. Painful, absolutely. Embarrassing, most definitely. Decreased the quality of his life, absolutely, but it was not life-threatening. And so, Jesus, you cannot heal him. It's the Sabbath. That would be breaking the law. It's here that we see this thing that God had given to his people in order to be a gift that has been turned into a burden. It makes me think if there are any other areas 
of our Christian faith today that God has given to us as a gift and we've turned it into a burden for other people. And Jesus, he's not okay with it. And so he confronts the religious leaders about this. And this is the point where Jesus asked that question that we just read in verse four. He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? In other words, Jesus is saying, have y'all lost your minds? He's saying, seriously, like this man needs help and your law prohibits him from receiving it all in the name of God? All in the name of religious custom? Jesus is saying, you've created a religious system that is so rigorous that you can't even recognize the difference between good and evil anymore. What a scary place to be at. And look at their response. But they remained silent. They remained silent. This poor man's needs were right in front of them. And yet they were blinded to it. Because they were so set in their ways. They were so confident that their way of following after God was the right way. And anything that questioned that was wrong. And in verse 5, we see Jesus' response to this all. And I love this because this is one of the few moments in in Scripture, in the Gospels, where we actually see Jesus' emotional response to something. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. This this term, deeply distressed, that's the same words that are used uh, to, uh, to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hours before he's about to go and die a, a, a gruesome death on the cross where he is literally sweating drops of blood and he's crying out to God in anguish. The scripture says that he is deeply distressed in that moment. And that's what he's feeling here. Righteous anger and he is deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And so Jesus, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. It's a miracle. There's complete healing and restoration for this man. And yet look at verse 6, the story, it has a tragic ending because it says, Then the Pharisees went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. They didn't see the miracle that had taken place. They just saw the rules that had been broken. Think about it. The religious leaders, they knew the Bible more than anyone. They were more committed than anyone. They they followed the rules more than anyone. How did they become the ones who took God's law that was meant to help people and they twisted it in such a way to where it hurt people? How did they become the ones who were the enemies of Jesus, who plotted to and eventually killed Jesus? Like, how did this happen? And I think the answer goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. It goes back to comforts. The religious leaders, they had built a comfortable system where they were at the top. 
and they spent their whole lives, they knew scripture. They were looking for the coming Messiah, the promised Messiah, but you know what? They were looking for their own version of Messiah. And when the wrong Messiah showed up, they decided that it would be better to kill him over giving up their power and their privilege. They were so set in their way, so comfortable with what they believed to be true that they were completely unwilling to change that perspective. And in verse 5, Jesus, he calls this out and he says that they have stubborn hearts. Stubborn hearts. Other translations use the term hard hearts. Now here's the important thing that we can't miss with this term. Stubborn hearts, hard hearts, it's not just used here in Mark chapter 3. It's actually used two other times in the book of Mark, and it's not used to describe the religious leaders. No, Jesus uses the same term, stubborn hearts, hard hearts, to describe his very own disciples, his 12 closest followers. In other words, no one is immune to a hardened heart. We're all susceptible to it. There's not a single person in this room watching online who is immune to having a hardened heart. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church, how long you've been following Jesus. We all are susceptible to it. And, and my biggest fear in sharing this story this weekend is that we would hear this message and immediately think of someone else in our life who needs to hear it. Right? It's just, it's too easy to do. Oh, I wish my uncle could hear this. Man, he is so stubborn. No, we're all susceptible to a hardened heart. We are all inclined to crawl back into our comfort zone, to become callous to anything around us that challenges that. You see, the reality is, I am the one who has a hardened heart. I'm the one that needs to grow. And so are you. No one is immune. Turn to the person sitting next to you right now and say, I'm the one that needs to grow. All the smart Alex out there just said, Becky is the one that needs to grow. <laughs> For some of us, that's hard to admit, right? Because it's so much easier to, to, to identify someone else's growth areas than to identify our own. And this is why I love, I love what the Apostle Paul says to a young leader, a young pastor named Timothy. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. Man, that is a good sentence. And then Paul says, of whom I am the worst. Even Paul, like arguably the greatest Christian of all time. Even he recognizes his own sin, the own stubbornness within his heart and his need to grow in Christ. We're all susceptible to a hardened heart. Here's the big issue, though. A stubborn heart is almost impossible to self-diagnose. A stubborn heart, a hard heart, is almost impossible to identify in oneself. I mean, I have been in the church now for 32 years. And you know what I have never once heard someone say in 32 years of going to church, I have never once heard someone say, well, you know what, I act that way because I have such a stubborn heart. 
No, it just doesn't happen. It's extremely difficult to identify the hardness within our own hearts. The religious leaders, they couldn't do it. That's why Jesus had to point it out to them. So how can we know? How can we figure out where the stubbornness exists within our own hearts? Well, the place to begin is by asking God to pray and to say, God, show me the areas of my life where I've become stubborn. In what ways have I allowed my heart to harden towards other people? In what ways have I grown comfortable with my faith, familiar with my faith, so much so that, that I've started valuing religion over valuing people? God, reveal those things to me. Show those things to me. And we pray that prayer not just one time, but over and over and over again, each and every single day until those things are revealed. Because it's not a matter of do I have a stubborn heart. It's a matter of where do I have a stubborn heart. In what ways are my heart stubborn? The second way we can identify the stubbornness within our own hearts is to ask others. Ooh, that's less fun. You want to know two questions that I have been asking myself all week long? I don't know why I asked it in question form because I'm going to tell you them regardless of how you answer. You're like, no, Becky, we don't. Okay, end of sermon. <laughs> the two questions that I've been wrestling with this week, I've been thinking about over and over again this week. Here's the first one. Who in my life have I given permission to point out areas where my heart has become hardened? Like specific people, specific names. Not just like the people I go to church with. No, like you gotta get more specific than that. Here's how I answer this question for me. The people, these people for me are my husband, Garrett, my family, my team, the people I work with, who I report to, who report to me, who I work alongside, and my community group. These are the people who have the greatest perspective into my life, who I spend the most time with, who I live most of my life with. And some of these people, I have told them directly this in some form or another, like, hey, call me out on things that I may be blind to. Hey, what are, what are the, the things that, that maybe I'm not aware of? Show them to me. For the rest of you who maybe fall into one of these categories for me, this is my public way of like declaring to you, you have the permission to point these things out to me. My life group, most of them are sitting over there. They're gonna have fun with us tomorrow night. My brother-in-law, he actually read through my sermon yesterday. And when he got to this part, he just commented, yes, I have so many things I'm gonna tell you. I'm like, jerk, <laughs> whatever. Who would these people be for you? Like, can you specifically name people? Maybe you feel like you don't have anyone in your life who could do this. A great goal for you would be for this year to get connected in deeper community, to find a friend who is strong in their faith, not just someone who agrees with everything you say, but they are strong in their faith and you can build trust with them and you can have this kind of relationship with them. The Bible describes these types of relationships as iron, sharpening iron. You can imagine there's friction, there's tension, there may be even painfulness involved, but it's so good it makes us better. Maybe you do have someone like this who could play this role in your life. You've just never given them permission to do so. A goal for you would be to have that conversation with them. Who in my life have I given permission to point out areas where my heart has become hardened? Here's the second question. I just like this one way more. What is my response when they do so? <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> 
Okay, I'm going to be honest. Here's my response, because these situations have happened. People who love and trust me and want what's best for me, they call things out in my life, in my heart, that they think are not right. And my response, just to be honest, I become defensive. I do. I start arguing why their perspective is wrong, and, and I begin to justify why I am right. I become judgmental. I start comparing my life to their life. Well, look at what they're doing. Who are, who, what gives them the right to call me out on that? Church, allowing people to help us identify these areas of stubbornness within our own heart, it is not an easy thing to do. But it is a necessary thing to do because there is perhaps nothing more dangerous, nothing more damaging to the message of Jesus Christ than a Christian with a stubborn heart. Than a Christian whose heart has become hardened. I mean, just think of how many great evils throughout human history have been perpetrated by people who thought that they were acting on God's behalf. The Crusades. Slavery. But this is also something that is evident on an individual scale, at a personal level. The damage, the, the destruction of a Christian with a stubborn heart, it's evident every single time that I judge someone who lives differently than I do. It's evident in the moments when I have withheld grace from a person, all in the name of like biblical truth. Well, they just need to know. That may be right. They might need to know. But you know what's probably more true? I have a stubborn heart. A Christian with a stubborn heart can cause immeasurable destruction and pain. And this is why Jesus, he addressed the religious leaders so directly, so often. I mean, there's example after example after example. Just read the Gospels. And so many times he even used harsh words with them. Church, I don't want to be that kind of Christian. And so as difficult as it is to hear correction from someone, as easy as it is uh, for me to become defensive in those moments, I have to do everything I can to be open-handed with my response. I have to give myself permission to just sit and just listen. I have to be willing to take what is shared instead of dismissing it Immediately, that person, they don't know what they're talking about. I have to take it to God and say, God, is there any truth to what was shared? Even if 99% of it is wrong, God, that means 1% of it is true. Show me that. We are all susceptible to hardened hearts, and so we have to be willing to help others identify those areas for us, but that alone, just identifying is not enough, right? We also have to be willing to change. And ultimately, this isn't something that's done through just trying our own effort. No, it's in partnership with God and what he does through his Holy Spirit, working in us, softening our hearts as we're submitting to him, to his will for our life, surrendering control to him. God, he's the one who causes the change, but we do still have a critical part to play in this process. And it's actually the man 
in our story with the withered hand who shows us two things that we can do in order to soften our hearts, in order to avoid this hardened heart. Look back at verse 5. The end of the verse, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. Think about that command for a second. Like remember, this is a man with a disability. He could not move his hand. Like stretch out your hand, Jesus, that's crazy. On top of that, it was probably embarrassing. He had a withered hand. He didn't want to stretch out his hand in front of everyone. In other words, he, he's faced with a choice. Will he do the uncomfortable? Will he, will he trust Jesus or will he stay in his comfort zone? Do you see what's happening? This man with the withered hand, his, his, his decision is the same decision that's before the religious leaders. Jesus went directly after both of their weaknesses. For this man, it was his physical disability, his withered hand. For the religious leaders, it was their spiritual disability, their stubborn hearts. Both parties have the same opportunity. Stretch out your hands to Jesus. Stretch out your weakness to Jesus because there and there alone can we find healing. This man, he exemplified two things that the religious leaders didn't have, and I believe these are two things that are critical for maintaining a soft heart. It's humility and trust. Humility and trust. Being humble enough to recognize and admit our weaknesses and then trusting Jesus to heal us even when it seems impossible. I mean, what is more uncomfortable than that? I mean, people today, we, we avoid these two things like the plague, humility and trust. We see those things as weaknesses in our culture. But despite how uncomfortable it may have been, this man, he displayed humility, he displayed trust. And look at the rest of verse 5. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Growth, it requires discomfort. And this man, he embraced the uncomfortable, resulting in him growing closer to Jesus than he had ever experienced before. Him stepping into the uncomfortable, it resulted in him experiencing healing and complete restoration in his life. I want to close by asking each of you the same question I posed earlier in this sermon. Where do you want to grow spiritually this year? Don't let another day of 2020 go by without actually thinking through that. How would you answer that question? Are you willing to make, to let God make you uncomfortable in order to get you there? Even if it doesn't come in the way you expected, even if it's very different than, than what you would have planned, even if you have to give up something you love or, 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 or you're, you're, it's something that you're even convinced is good. You know, the story from Mark 3, it's a little window into how Jesus often comes in ways that we don't expect. And it's easy now, right, with like the benefit of hindsight to look at the religious leaders of that day and think like, how did you miss it? Right, like how did you miss that? It was so obvious. Like the Sabbath, this, this something that was meant to be so beautiful, so, so good for God's people. Like you totally missed the point. But isn't it true that we so often do the same thing? 
Next weekend, we're going to begin a new six-week series called What Does Love Require? And during which uh, we'll take a look at why Jesus came. Why did he come to earth? What did he want to do? What was his purpose? And how, at times, the church has completely missed that purpose. And to be honest, for many of us who are like me, who grew up in the church, who have who have been around Christians, who have been following Jesus for a long time, this series, it may stir up some discomfort within us. And it will speak to some aspects of our faith that maybe we hold on very tightly to. And so I want to encourage all of us over the next six weeks to commit to two things. The first is to be here each of the next six weeks weekends. I realize it might require you to rearrange plans. It might require you to reorganize some priorities in your life. I, 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 I want to ask you to make it happen because I believe it will be worth the effort and the sacrifice. The second thing I want to encourage you to commit to over the next six weeks is to embrace the posture of the man in our story today, the, the man with the withered hand, to embrace humility and trust. Each time when you, when you walk into an auditorium on the weekends and you hear the sermon or you listen online, you watch online, each time you uh, discuss things further during the week with your community group, pursue above everything else a posture of humility and trust. Because when we embrace humility instead of holding on tightly to our comfort or our perspectives or the way that we think things should be, when we're more open-handed and we choose to trust Jesus, we put ourselves in a place to be able to grow and truly experience all that he would have for us. And that's our hope, that's our prayer, that for every single one of us at the end of this six weeks, we would grow closer to Jesus. That at the end of these six weeks, we would be people who reflect, who look more like Jesus. That at the end of these six weeks, Cornerstone, we would be a church collectively that reflects more of who Jesus is to the world around us than we do currently. Embrace humility and trust. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are a God who has always cared most about people. More than religion, more than duty, more than rules and customs and regulations, you just care about people. It's why you sent your son. It's why you paid it all for us. And God, we thank you for that because there's not a single one of us here who doesn't need your grace, who doesn't need your forgiveness. God, I pray that as we begin this new year, this new decade, that you would show us, whether, whether it's through the revelation of your Holy Spirit or it's through someone else speaking truth in our life, that you would show us the areas of our life, of our hearts, where we have become hardened. Where we've allowed stubbornness to take over. And God, I pray that you would rid us of it. 
We don't want to damage your name. We don't want to damage your message because we're Christians with stubborn hearts. So teach us how to be humble. Teach us how to trust you. Because with humility, with trust, God, that's the only way that we'll even begin to reflect who you are to this broken and hurting world around us. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ.